Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? that despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right, but for Jesus, This is what had to happen. 
Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. All right. So last week we started this new series called Upside Down Kingdom. And we looked last week at the second psalm and how uh, the author shared with us this story of the king. And, and there were three movements that we went through in this psalm. We have a king, we hate the king, and we need the king. And, and, and that's, that's all well and good. That's, that's good for us to know. Uh, but I think that most of us, at least those of us who grew up in church, we're, we're familiar with the idea of this king, with the idea of a, a, of a kingdom. And uh, we know that there was this king promised in the Old Testament, but then we get to the New Testament, and, and we start reading about the kingdom of God, and we get confused. Uh, lots of people have lots of thoughts on what the kingdom of God might be, and uh, that, of course, can make things really confusing really quickly, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on the matter. I'm 27. I'm not an expert on anything. Uh, but I do find the narrative of the kingdom of God to be one of, if not the most exciting throughout the entire story of the Bible. Uh, so I do feel that to some extent I'm at least familiar with it. And, uh, and I don't find it to be all that complicated, really. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is complexity to the story. There's depth there's narrative, there's movement, there's uh, sort of this organic sense to it as we unpack what is the kingdom of God. But at surface value, to understand what is the kingdom of God is, I don't think, all that complicated. So what I'd love to do this morning, and, and through the rest of the series actually, is start to unpack what in the world is the kingdom of God. When we read through the New Testament, when we find these stories of the king and the Old Testament, all of this surrounding this narrative of the kingdom of God, what is it? And so first, notice that I call this a narrative, right? And so that means it's, it's a driving theme throughout the entirety of the Bible. It's not some story that just pops up all of a sudden when Jesus finds himself on the scene in the early uh, chapters of the Gospels, right? This is something that the Jews would have known, they were familiar of. They, they understood what was going on when Jesus came and started preaching about this kingdom. Their minds went back to the Old Testament and they said, oh, we know about this kingdom, right? It's, it's this narrative that moves all the way through. It's been a part of the story since the beginning, and it will continue to be a part of the story through to the end. So, 
Let's start at the beginning first, right? So Genesis chapter 1 is where we learn about the kingdom of God for the first time. And in Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So first, before we start unpacking this too much, what does it mean to be made in the image of God, right? I mean, look around. We all look different, right? So which one of us is made in the image of God? right? It doesn't work that way. It's not, it's not a physical likeness to God. I think all of us have, have enough sense to, to realize that. But it's about his nature. It's about looking like who he is, not what he is. And so what is God all about? Why did God create us in the first place? It, it, it wasn't out of necessity. It wasn't because he needed someone to love and was not sufficient in and of himself to give and to receive love. It was actually an overflow of love that was already being expressed within the Trinity who is God. And as God, uh, the Father was loving God, the Son was loving God, the Spirit, and, and cycles on and on and on, that overflowed into uh, this cup running over of love into the creation of the world, into the creation of humanity, into the creation of you and I. It wasn't out of necessity. It was an overflow and an abundance of love. And so when he creates humanity, he creates us in his image to, to be builders, to be creators, but even more than that, to be rulers and I know that's, to some degree, maybe a weird thing to, to hear, but, but you can see it uh, even if you fast forward to Revelation 3.21. It's at the end of the book, too. God tells the church that whoever overcomes will sit on my throne with me and will reign forever with me. And we backtrack that and come back to Genesis 1. And look at these, look at these words we're looking at. Subdue, have dominion. There are some words out there, or some English translations of the Bible out there that don't say dominion, they just say rule. You rule over the fish of the sea, etc. And so it's not like for us, uh, if somebody uh, runs, you would call them a runner, right. When somebody rules, you would call them a Sometimes, this gets a little weird. This is when we talk about Jesus and we talk about the kingdom, and suddenly you can call them a ruler. But we tend to call them a king. But that's not how it worked in the Hebrew. When this is originally being written, what's being told to the first created human beings? They're being told to do king and queen things. To be king and queens. Not, not the ultimate authority. Like if you've ever worked at a restaurant or a retail or whatever and you've been in management, that doesn't mean you rule over and have dominion over all that, right? No, there's an owner who owns that, and the owner rules over it, you just rule on their behalf, right? You may think that you rule things on your own, but at the end of the day, owner gets to say what does and does not happen. 
And so this is that same kind of idea. The God who is the owner, the creator over all things, gave creation, created us, and said to subdue and have dominion over all of the earth. And this isn't just like, I mean, nobody's going to leave here and go fight some crows out in the, in the uh, grassy area out here and start telling them to do what they want because they're not going to listen. That'd be insane, right? But, but there's something about humanity that we, how many of you get stuck on Facebook looking at a picture of somebody or a video of somebody saving a dog or a kitten or something like that, right? Like there's just something inside of us that's like, save it, help it, help it, fix it. There's something in us that wants that. Like people go around in movies, you kill another person, you're like, oh. They kill another animal and they're like, no, 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 right? There's something inside of us that was created to subdue and have dominion over the world and we just are failing to recognize it. This is how God made us. And, and all that we do, unfortunately, is this is inside of us, but we, uh, we abuse it. We misuse this. We obscure what was originally good and supposed to be, and we try to make it our own, and we manipulate it. I, I mean, sex, for one thing, is, I mean, look at the way our society treats it. And we just, as long as it's good for me, then we take it. But, but God said in the beginning, be fruitful and multiply. Like, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what has to happen to make that happen, right? Mostly because rocket scientists don't work in biology. But nonetheless, you understand, like, we know what it takes to be fruitful and multiply, right? But then when we try to bring that and just say, no, I will choose the right and wrong way to partake in this. I will choose the right and wrong way to participate in this world. Then we start to obscure things. We start to manipulate what God has created us to do. And then there's power, right? How many people do you see hungry for power, grasping at power every chance they get? I mean, look, we're coming into election season, right? You want to talk about a manipulation of power, I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. We see this manipulation of power, this, this just grasping, longing for power. But then we see the more beautiful side of it too, and we, and we don't even recognize it. The couple that just that wants to have kids and say, I want to have something like me and love that and pour into it and grow it and, and nurture this new thing. That's the power that God was intending for us to have. That's what it means to subdue and have dominion, to rule the way that God would rule with, with more of a connotation of nurturing than anything else. Because look, how did God rule over Adam and Eve? He was present with them. He walked with them. He, he provided for them. He was there in the garden. He said, look at all of these trees. Have fun and eat. Enjoy yourselves. There was one, of course, that he said, don't eat from that one. But, but he planted this whole garden and said, this is for you. Enjoy it. That's God being the king. That's how he rules. And that's how we've been called to rule with God but not in the broken estate of this world as we see it now. And that's why Jesus came preaching the way he did. Look at Matt, or Mark, excuse me, chapter 1, right in the beginning. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what in the world is the kingdom of God, right? What is he preaching? Well, to put it very, very simply, 
the kingdom of God is that over which God rules and reigns. Pretty simple, right? The kingdom of God is that over which God rules and reigns. But, but let's dig into exactly what Jesus is saying here because there's actually a lot of really cool stuff going on just in this passage alone. He, he says to believe in the gospel, right? And that video we watched before broke down uh, that word a little bit, gospel. We, we might think that we don't see it a lot in the Old Testament, but it's littered in the Old Testament. It's all over the place. It's just portrayed in story more than in an exact word. This idea of the gospel. And so what does it mean? It means, if you grew up in church, you probably know it means good news, right? It, but what good news? What is the good news? And sometimes we get wrapped up in saying just that the gospel is that Jesus came, he uh, died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again. But what does that mean? What's the big deal behind all of that? Lots of people die. Only one came, well, Jesus raised some other people from the dead, but only one came back of his own power. But, but what does that mean at the end of the day? It's the good news of a king. And the Old Testament, when they would talk about the gospel, it was exclusively used to talk about the arrival of a new king. So then we look at this again. And Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the new king from God. That's what he's saying. There, there's suddenly this new dimension to this text that every time you see Jesus talk about the gospel, he, he's not just talking about his death, burial, and resurrection, but he's talking about himself as king who is fully God, fully man, and is coming to establish his throne on this world. Suddenly, these stories start to make more sense. In the uh, fullness of the Bible, you read it all together and suddenly things start to, to stick together. That It's a story about God who made people and those people decided uh, that they're to become their own gods, right? They weren't going to follow the God, but they decided to become their own gods and that resulted in death. But then God doesn't just leave us there. God has plans to make all things right and to rule over his kingdom again. And that brings life. And life will ultimately be God ruling over all of creation and his people ruling with him. And, and listen, I, I think we all have this in us and can recognize that we have this in us, this drive to have our own personal kingdoms, right? Right? Most of us have, at the very least, probably envisioned our own kingdom, where, uh, you know what I'm talking about, this perfect kingdom where you have a throne, right? And the back of that throne leans backwards, and the portion behind your feet swings up, and uh, you have this scepter that controls all of the entertainment that you could ever want and you get to enjoy that entertainment whenever, whatever, at any time, with no interruptions in your perfect kingdom. And your wife brings you whatever you want to eat at any time that you want to eat. And when you're done, you just toss the plate on the floor because it'll get cleaned up. Who's going to clean it up? I don't know. It's your perfect kingdom. It's not your responsibility, right? This is just your kingdom. And your kingdom has this luscious green grass and these perfect trees on the outside. And, and there's always the smell of barbecue, whether you're cooking it or not, right? And all those who live around you always comment on your perfect kingdom, 
And then reality hits, and here I am trying to rule my kingdom with a real wife and with two real kids under three years old, and nobody listens to me. <laughs> and it's not that much of a kingdom. And uh, the scepter that controls my entertainment always seems to be watching Mickey Mouse and Doc McStuffins. And uh, the food that I eat is, well, I can figure that out on my own because mom is tired. And, but, but there is one place that's still my kingdom. She's made by Honda, and she's called Civic. And when I get in, the seats are exactly where I want them to be every single time, and, and no exceptions. And if you ride with me, you sit where I tell you to sit. If I want you in the back seat, you ride in the back seat. And the mirrors are always exactly where I want them to be, to see exactly what I want to see. And I drive however fast I want, kind of. <laughs> and then, see, here's the, key, here's the kicker. There's no Disney music in my kingdom, right? I'm not listening to Let It Go in my kingdom anymore. Because in my kingdom, the music is always what I want it to be at the volume that I want. Why? Because the car seats are in my wife's car. And hopefully it stays that way. And uh, this is my kingdom, right? We, we all have this. We want our kingdom. We have this, this if, if not in reality, we at least envision this place that is just ours, that we get to rule over. And then Jesus comes preaching this countercultural kingdom. As we're grasping at everything, Jesus comes in and says, no, the real kingdom has come. Look at Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus says this. He says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, when Jesus came, he brought with him the kingdom of God. He brought with him his rule and reign. And while the Jews were expecting this uh, Messiah who would come and immediately set up his kingdom and wipe out all of their enemies, all of their oppressors, that's not exactly what Jesus did, right? They had this vision of their perfect kingdom in their minds. And Jesus shows up and says, no, the kingdom is here. It's come with me. And they just don't see it. But Jesus did immediately start making kingdom impact. He immediately started acting as a king, just not how they expected. Right? It's like he's in this position where the whole house maybe isn't under his kingship yet, but the car sure is. Right? He's got this, this little pocket. And here's the thing about an upside-down kingdom. Things rarely go how we expect, right? Things rarely go how we think they're going to go. That's why it's called an upside-down kingdom. And what Jesus did is he came into this world what was not the Eden that he had initially created. What we see when we look back at the Old Testament in the midst of the kingdom of God, this perfect dwelling place that he had made. And, and that's where God dwelt. And then Jesus comes to earth, and it's not that. And when Jesus comes, he doesn't come down and just snap his fingers and immediately everything's right, everything's good. But like a good gardener, he started pulling some weeds. He started turning up the soil. 
He started planting new flowers, new bushes, new creation. He didn't just come in and rip out the whole garden and lay down a new one. But he started the process. And that's, that's exactly what this passage is saying. Because Jesus announced that the kingdom of God's at hand. The kingdom of God is here. It's present. It, it's, he's not just saying that the kingdom of God is coming. It's at hand. It's here. And, and we see all of that through the rule and reign of Jesus. But how do we see him reigning as a king? Where do we see his rule? Well, when Jesus told demons to leave a person's body, what did they do? They obeyed. When he told sickness to leave, it left. When he told eyes to see, they opened. When he told the lame to get up, their legs suddenly worked. We see all of our creation as Jesus speaks. Creation knows who its king is, and it listens. It obeys. It has no right but to obey what the king says. And we see Jesus coming and creating these little pockets of the kingdom of God all over Israel where sickness and death and hurt and disease and brokenness all have no option but to obey the voice of King Jesus. And so his followers, and still us today. He's commissioned us and told us to keep bringing what he started, to keep moving this movement of Christianity, that it didn't stop when the king resurrected back to heaven, but he said, I'm coming back, and when I come back, I will establish the fullness of my reign. But for now, you work. You share the good news of this kingdom. You tell people that the king is coming and you get ready for him. And so he commissioned his followers and us as well to be these agents of repair in this broken world. And so everything that we're called to do is to be in preparation for the coming king. And, and you know, when, when we look at this, I don't just rule over my household by being the one who fights off the bad guys and yells at people until they listen and dishes out the consequences, right? As a father... Hopefully, those of us who are fathers or who have had a father recognize that whether that was your experience or not, a father is called to more than that, right? We're not just this discipline that forces our will upon everybody. But when my kids get hurt, guess who kisses their boo-boo? Has to put on the band-aid, as my two-year-old says. And, and who rocks those kids to sleep occasionally when my wife doesn't? And... I mean, there's, there's this aspect to being a ruler that is more than just laying down the law, but it's laying down myself. Because how does God rule but to lay down himself? That's the coming of the kingdom. That's what he's called us to. And our, our rule is to nurture and love and pour ourselves out into this world as agents of repair. The same way that we saw Jesus nurture and love and repair this broken world when he came. And so my job is to actively show my family what it means to be a follower of Jesus and a servant in his kingdom. And 
We do this by caring for the widows and the orphans, by caring for the broken, by bringing reconciliation, by doing things that Jesus did when he was here. And every time we participate in those things, we are actively proclaiming the kingdom of God. We are actively saying to the world, the kingdom of God is at hand and the king is coming back. I'm proclaiming to my family and everyone around me that Jesus is king and his kingdom is here. And it continues to come through that healing and restoration. But, but we have this weird aspect of the kingdom, right? It's, it's what theologians came up with this really complex phrase for. Already but not yet, right? And so Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is, is showing his, his followers how to pray. And right from the start, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Jesus, you just said it's at hand. You just said it's here, and now you're saying your kingdom. What? Well, not so fast. Because again, the kingdom of God can be summed up in those four super complicated words. Already, but not yet. The kingdom of God is already here. It's already at hand. But it's not yet been brought in fullness. Jesus already came, but he has not yet come. Jesus already defeated death, but he's not yet annihilated it. Do you get where I'm going with this? There's this tension that we live in as modern day Christians of already, but not yet. And so what God did when he came as Jesus, it's kind of like if you those of us who grew up with dominoes, right? You go and you start setting up all the dominoes in a line and then you accidentally knock one over and knocks all of them over and then you have to go back and you start all over because I don't think anybody's done it fully the first time. Uh, it's just, that's not the way dominoes work. So you go back, you start over and you set up the dominoes. You set them out in this long line and for whatever small amount of satisfaction you get from it, you go back to the beginning and you tap that first domino and you watch all the rest of the dominoes subsequently fall down. And what Jesus did when he came was that already but not yet, you already knocked down the domino, but you've not yet watched the last one fall. He already came and defeated death when he knocked over that first domino, but we're still waiting for the fulfillment to come. We're waiting for the last domino to fall. But listen, when the first domino falls, what does that mean about the last? It means you know it's coming. There's no stopping those dominoes. All the laws of nature are driving those dominoes to knock over the rest. And so when Jesus came, he put in motion something that can never be stopped. And so we see that kingdom coming, and we participate in that coming kingdom of already but not yet. See, uh, it was interesting when my wife was pregnant with our first kid, Felicity, that people would come and ask her, like, oh, tell me about what it's like to be a mom. And, and they would talk about being a mom and all this kind of stuff. And like, she's still pregnant. And then people would come to me and they're like, so you ready to be a dad? I'm like, hold up. So she's already a mom, but I'm, am I ready to be a dad? Like, we both made this thing. Like, I mean, yeah, she's carrying the full weight of it now, but like, if she's a mom already, I'm a dad already, right? And it was even weirder when we had Parker. Because people would ask the same thing, like, 
oh, you ready to be a dad? And it's like, but I, I have a one-year-old. Like, what do you mean am I ready to be a dad? I am a dad. Like, come on. And, and so there's this tension of already but not yet because even we felt that tension because, yeah, we were already parents, right? And listen, we, we got this girl thing down. Boys are a different animal, though, let me tell you. Like, first time I changed that kid's diaper in the hospital, I learned real quick where you have to aim things before you just start changing and walking away, right? We were already parents, but at the same time, we were not yet parents. We had no idea what it was like to be boy parents. It was something brand new. And so we see this tension all over our world, all over the things that we live in. And so it's similar with the kingdom of God because as my wife was pregnant both times, as we went through those nine months, when we first got the pregnancy test, like it was, it was excitement. And now what do we do? <laughs> right? Like this is a long wait from here. And so the excitement would die a little bit and then come back and then die a little bit. And, but the closer we got to that ninth month, that excitement never died down anymore. It, it, was, it just kept climbing and climbing. And, and it's, is today the day? Is today the day? Is today the day? And it, and it was just this excitement of, oh my goodness, there's too much to do before the baby gets here. And, and we're running around doing everything we can, trying to prepare for this. And it's the same thing with the kingdom of God, right? Because as it gets closer and closer and closer, and as we see the things of the Bible coming to fruition and recognizing that Jesus is coming, it should build in us this excitement, not a fear. There's so much in the world driving to make us afraid, but God has conquered those things. This is his kingdom. We're his people. We should be excited. And just like my wife and I, when we were getting ready to be parents, we started doing everything to be the best parents. We're reading all the books. We're painting bedrooms. We're setting up cribs. We're doing all of it, right? And so as we see the kingdom of God coming nearer, hopefully those of us who call ourselves Christians, we're participating in this. We're moving. We're excited and we're actively doing what Jesus told us to do, to share the gospel. The king is coming. The king is coming. And, and so listen, through all of this, the most important thing that we can understand about the kingdom of God is that we're not just here waiting for God to come take us away and make all things right again. There's, there's this Western Christianity mindset that seems to affect us where we just, we look at this broken world and we're waiting and hoping and we're sick of what we live in and we say, God, just Lord Jesus, come take us home, right? Get us out of here. That's not what he's calling us to. That's not it. We're, we're not, don't live in this reality of God's just going to take you away. You're going to live in some ethereal spiritual realm where all things will be right and you don't ever have to see this world again. That's not what he called us to. And, and so what did Jesus pray? When he showed his disciples how to pray, he prayed, your will be done on earth as in heaven. On earth as in heaven. That should be our daily prayer. That should be what we're pursuing. God, your kingdom on earth as in heaven. And so uh, Tim Keller, such a genius. Uh, he's a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. 
And Tim Keller said this, in the future, you have all these cultural activities going on. Why? Because our future is a material future. The book of Revelation makes it very clear at the end of time, the end of history, we do not see us as individuals leaving the material world and going off into some ethereal realm, a disembodied spiritual realm. Instead, we see the power of God coming down to cleanse and perfect this material world. So, if you want to see the future of the human race, you look at Jesus after the resurrection, when he had his absolutely perfect, glorified body, but he could still eat a fish. You put your hand through the nail prints, and you could feel him. And so now, contrary to everything you've heard through Star Trek, the evolutionary future of the human race will not be balls of light or points of consciousness. We are going to hug and be hugged. We are literally going to eat, drink, and dance in the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God. This is what we're working for. This is what it's all about. This is what Jesus looked forward to so that when he faced the cross, he could say, yes, I'll do it. I'll die. Because he was looking forward to this glorious kingdom where all things were made right again. Because it's worth it. Because he is redeeming all things to himself again, as Colossians 1.20 says. And he has commissioned us to be agents of repair, accomplishing the same. That's the kingdom of God. That's what it's all about. We were created to rule and reign with God, but we messed it up. But fortunately, he is beyond capable of fixing it. And he came and began to establish his kingdom through restoration to bring the fullness of his kingdom in due time. And that's why at the end it says, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. And thank you for your kingdom and, and all that that means, all that it encompasses. And God, I, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be present today in a way that he is working in each of our hearts and minds and souls and just convicting each of us to pull us closer into that kingdom, to call us to be participants in the kingdom of God and not just observers but to do as you called us to do and to be those agents of repair and to bring restoration, to heal brokenness, to love the unlovely, and to do all of the things that Jesus was all about. God, work in us, move us, and may we be the hands and feet of your church and of your kingdom. And God, we thank you and we love you and we praise you. And we pray that your will would be done here on earth just as in heaven. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.